Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me pray for a moment. Lord, this morning, uh, may, I, uh, may I be kind and encouraging. And because of you and because of what you have accomplished, optimistic. Lord, may I also be clear and truthful with what you have said in your word. Lord, thank you for the privilege of standing here. I stand not in the office of an apostle. There aren't any of those on earth today. I am no prophet. Thank you for the privilege of being a small s shepherd among your people. May I um, wear the office well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It is a rare thing, and I am grateful to the elder body who establishes the preaching schedule that they have, they have permitted me the freedom to do something we very, very, very rarely do around here. We teach through books of the Bible on Sunday morning, quite convicted that that is the best means whereby God's people can be exposed to the whole counsel of God. Um, if there is a place for topical preaching, it is our conviction that it is a, it is a small place that God's people will be most edified and most uplifted as they study the whole counsel of God by looking at books and looking thus at passages with a certainty that they're examining them in an appropriate context. But some months ago, we saw that the very 4th of July was to be on a Sunday morning. Um, I love our nation. I am a native son of the United States of America, born right up in Jacksonville Beach. I'm even a native Floridian, though I have moved to Florida twice, once from Tennessee and once from Kentucky. I'm sort of an odd mix. I've moved into Florida cross country two times as a native Floridian. Too many moving trucks in my youth. But down the years, 
It seems there has at times been a tendency in God's people. Apart from the, the ebb and flow of national political currents, I'm not talking this morning about national political currents. I tend to take a pass on speaking about those things from here because we have more important things to speak of from here. I'm not talking about national political currents. I'm talking about a, a tendency, and if you haven't spotted it, that's okay. But there has, there has tended to be down the long years, in my view, an over much conflation, combination, even confusion of, of patriotism and loyalty to country, which is a good thing. It is a good thing until it is elevated alongside or above loyalty to Jesus Christ and his mission. We are not Americans first, those of us who are Americans. We are followers of Jesus Christ living in a nation that is part of a world at war with God. And our mission and our message is the seeking and saving of the lost, the gospel of Jesus Christ, far, far above all other missions, far, far above all other messages. And if that offends you, I'm big and I'm loud and I'm accidentally offensive all the time. But if that offends you, that my statement, well, I put it in the message as the big idea. It's on the top of the outline. If you've got the outline, either on paper or digitally, our national identity and loyalty must never come near. It can't be close. It can't be confusing. Our national identity and loyalty must never come near to our identity in and loyalty to Christ and his mission to seek and save the lost. Thank you for those amen and encouragement. And if that formulation causes you heartburn, bear with me. I'm gonna look this morning at Psalm 2. We've had it read to us, I'll be going through it, and I'm gonna take a side trip over to Romans 1 and show you something that I believe is indicative, perhaps, of, of much of the spiritual state of our nation, which I love. Roman number one on your outline, the rebellion of the nations. Psalm, verse two, or Psalm 2, verses one through three. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Three things we see in that set of verses. First, we see the nation's plot. Why do the nations rage and the peoples, that is not individuals, the peoples, that's plural for people groups, that's in parallel with the nations. Why do the nations rage and the people groups of the earth plot in vain? Now when we see the nations in the Old Testament, 
And I'm not, I'm not gonna just hammer this point into the ground, but it's an important point. It is tempting for you and I, as citizens of, for those of us who are citizens of the U.S., and in this, in this room, in this region on awards day, some of you may not be U.S. citizens. And I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you're here, and I'm glad for the freedoms that bring you here. But it is, it is a temptation for those of us who, who love our nation and, and know that our nation has, in, in some ways, has its roots in, in theological thought. The temptation is to, to see the nations in the Old Testament and perhaps perceive that there are three categories. Israel, who stands alone as God's chosen nation. The United States of America and the rest of the world. But that second category doesn't exist. The United States of America is not in some privileged theological category. One line in to Psalm 2, if you're looking for the United States, we're one of the nations. Because there are only two categories in God's catalog of the earth's nations, Israel and all other. We are in the all other. And our nation is among those nations that plot rebelliously against the rule and overrule of the living God. It's been the case for a quite long time. The nations plot. They, they declare their autonomy. In our national discourse and dialogue, God is reduced to tokenism. His mission to save the lost by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, viewed essentially out of bounds in most public discourse about God. The plot. Let her be the nation's posture. The kings of the earth set themselves. That is, they take up a position. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Circle that word anointed in verse two. That word is the word Messiah. The nations take up position against Jesus as he is and his mission as he describes it. The, the purposes of a nation at their best do not align with the purposes of the living God. And we as God's people must imperatively, imperatively align ourselves with the mission of our Savior to seek and save the lost. Not with a national identity, not with mostly a national agenda, not with a political identity within that nation. Those things are, are permissible, but they are not primary. Not to the children of the living God. Their nations take up a posture against the Lord and his Messiah, unless Psalm 2 has it wrong. 
It seems not. Letter C, the nation's pronouncement. Verse three, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us not be embraced by the living God. Let us not be limited by the living God. Let us not be loyal to the living God. Let's, let's box him up, shelf him, and when, his, when rhetoric regarding him comes in handy for us, let's invoke him. But for heaven's sakes, let's not bow our knee before him. Let's not acknowledge that he is as he says he is. Let's not talk about the lostness of mankind and the desperate need for a savior. That conversation has no place in the public, popular, mainstream discourse. Or so it seems. Roman numeral two. The reprobation of a people. Now reprobation is a theological term. I've given you a definition in your outline. If you will, kind of hold Psalm 2, we'll be back, but take a look with me over now in Romans chapter 1. As Paul began his construction of his argument for the gospel of grace, the most theologically advanced argument for the gospel of grace in the entire word of God. As God unfolds in progressive revelation the doctrine of salvation alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, it finds its, its pinnacle in the construction given by God through Paul in the books of Romans and the book of Galatians. And as Paul begins to build his argument that salvation comes to individuals by grace alone, through faith alone, in a context of profound lostness. He describes in Roman 1 a, a process that the, the theologians call the, the doctrine or process of reprobation. Reprobation is when God turns his back on a person or people group who have turned their backs on him. The doctrine of reprobation reminds us, Brother, Brother David said in his message last Sunday that God is not obligated to physically heal anyone and he's right. The doctrine of reprobation reminds us that God is not obligated to either save anyone. No one can claim salvation by right. We claim salvation in response to God's invitation. And no people group can claim the forgiveness and restoration of God by right. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, this is Romans 1 beginning in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. That is, the very existence of the glory of God in creation should draw forth from mankind a desire to know more, to follow more closely, 
to align themselves, to fall before the majesty of the one who is creator. The existence of creation should draw forth the worship of the creator. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That is, they elevated into the spot of creator those things that are created. Letter A on my outline, it's the normalization of naturalism shows up most pointedly in the normalization of evolutionary thinking. The first benchmark, the first mile marker in a culture that's turning its back on its creator. It's why when Paul spoke to the pagans in Greece, in Athens in Acts 17, he started with God as creator. He did the same thing when he spoke to the unbelievers in Berea. He started with God as creator because the collapse of a people starts when they no longer as a culture generally acknowledge God as creator. That has been the case in the United States since at least the middle of the 20th century when it was no longer mainstream, when it was a bit marginal to a spouse that God created as he says he did. My heart breaks in 2021 for Christians who have compromised the biblical truth of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the reality of creation and the fall, and think they can do so and still hang on to John 3, that God so loved the world. You're no longer submitting yourself to God's word. You're sitting in judgment of it. Stay with that. And you'll proceed to step two. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. Better be on your outline is the normalization of sexual immorality. Not that long ago, generally in our culture, If a man and a woman had sex outside of marriage, it was generally accepted in our culture that that was an evil and sinful thing. Now we take it in stride. It's utterly normalized. I've had, we've had people seeking to join this church and they call themselves engaged. Engaged. May God forgive them for what they're engaged in. But here in 2021, it's an odd and extreme thing to think that sex should only occur within the boundaries of a real marriage. That being married or being not married is a binary thing. You're either married or you're not. And yet in in, in 21st century North America, I sound like a museum relic even saying that. Collapse. God says, "If if that's what you wish to do, 
If you wish to take the glorious picture, the portrait of the relationship between Christ and his church, which is pictured within the boundaries of marriage, and turn it into some recreational plaything, if you will turn your back on me that resolutely, then I shall turn my back on you. Stay with that, normalize it, and we come to letter C. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the dual penalty for their error. Happy Pride Month. Where it's a, where it's a sin not to honor, at least as our culture defines sin and righteousness. It's a sin not to honor homosexual relationships and uphold them with pride. Lord have mercy indeed. Finally, live there for a while. Normalize that. And we come to the fourth stage where biblical categories of what is sin and what is not are pitched by a people out the window as once again, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Listen to this catalog. The fascinating thing about this catalog in this fourth and final step of divine reprobation is how normal, how not a big deal the things on this list sound. All manner of unrighteousness, evil. Covetousness, it's a way of life. Malice, envy, murder. You say murder. Murder normalized in the United States of America? Becky, I'm not picking on you, but let me ask you something. My sister, you're in the trenches. Is murder normalized in the United States of America? It's utterly commonplace. It's utterly commonplace. We take it in stride as a nation. In fact, we militantly defend our right to it. Becky, by the way, serves at the Verity Pregnancy Center seeking to convince these couples not to take the life of their child. God bless you for doing that. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, which means laziness, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
It is difficult for me to avoid the conclusion that the United States stands under the reprobative justice of a holy God. And you and I must remember in that setting that our role as a righteous remnant, righteous not because of ourselves, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, is to rescue the perishing. The fields are white for harvest. And as important as our national identity is, our mission is to tell people about Jesus through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because back to Psalm 2, Roman numeral 3, the wrath of God is coming. The Lord's derision, that is his contempt, is outlined in verses 4 through 6 back in Psalm 2, and I must hurry. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs at, at the rebellion of the nations. He laughs at the idea of the nations that they can just, I tell you what, let's pretend God doesn't exist. Let's do things as though he doesn't. And he who sits in the heaven laughs and holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, when the living God says, as for me, you better perk up. Because what's coming is truth. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Jesus Christ is Lord over the earth of the past. Jesus Christ is Lord on earth today. Jesus Christ will be visibly and physically Lord on earth in time to come. And it won't matter what various pockets of national humanity have said or done to thumb their nose at his rule. Oh, may our loyalty be correctly placed. His derision, verses seven and eight, his decree. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, this is God the Son speaking now, the Messiah, the anointed one speaking. God said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. By the way, that is the clearest reference to the father-son relationship within the Trinity in the entire Old Testament. That verse, verse seven, is alluded to three times, quoted three more in the New Testament. This relationship between God the Father, God the Son, uh, will be the, by the way, the, the material I'll be looking at in the Beyond the Notes podcast this week. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing. God says, the nations will be your heritage. Subservient to me, that's God's decree. And then let her see the Lord's dashing his judgment is coming on the nations. You shall break them. What them? The nations. The nations that have plotted in rebellion against you, you'll break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. They don't matter eternally. We're assigned mostly to that which does. Brother Russell, you're being awfully hard on the nation. No, I'm being hard on misplaced priorities. Finally, the refuge found only in the sun. I have to tell you, <laughs> I have been privileged, less than some, more than others, but I have been privileged on dozens and dozens of occasions in my life to travel outside the borders of the United States. I, uh, I am blessed to carry a United States passport. 
and I carry it with, uh, with satisfaction. And there's not a time in the dozens of times I've done it when I've come back in through customs and come back in through um, passport control and I turn to whoever I'm with as we're now out in the main, usually the main part of some airport terminal or some seaport. I turn to them and I say, we are back in the United States. I love being back in the United States. But that sense of homeness that one gets upon return to the United States from some other nation is nothing compared to that sense of homeness that we find in Jesus. And we'll one day find in his physical presence in his holy city. The word of God says this, first wisdom and warning. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. To be wise is to see reality as God sees it. To be warned is, well, to be warned. Wisdom and warning. Letter B, fear and rejoicing. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. We don't stand before him by right. We stand before him by gracious invitation. He is not our peer. He is not our equal. He is not the old man upstairs. He is the living God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you don't fear him, you don't understand him. And he reaches out in his glory, majesty, holiness, righteousness, wrath, and says to a people, if you will turn from your sin and trust me by faith, I have made a way for you to be eternally saved. We talk about salvation from our sin a lot, but if you really think about it, you know what we're saved from? We're saved from his wrath because of our sin. His righteous judgment is that which he has made a way for us to be saved from. Oh, fear the Lord. Rejoice! Absolutely. Serve him? Absolutely. But do so in light of who he is. That he has accomplished by the death of Christ on the cross a means for sinners to turn from their sin and come home. And he proved it when he rose from the grave. If your neighbors, friends, family members, or workers you work with at work, if they know more about your package of Americanistic viewpoints than they know about the gospel of Jesus Christ out of your mouth, something is off the rails. Relationship and refuge. Kiss the sun, other Translations say, pay honor to the Son. What Son? The Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed. All those terms from within this psalm. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, however, 
are all who take refuge in him. Oh, come into Jesus. Turn from your sin. Trust him by faith. I love my nation, but my nation is not designed to last forever. My kingdom, of which I stand as an ambassador, will endure forever. And before I would invite you to the glory of my nation, which, by the way, is not trivial, I would invite you to the glory of my Savior and tell you that you will be blessed as you take refuge in him.